Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Elizabeth Strout reads Rose Wept, a short story by William Trevor. To learn more from Strout about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Elizabeth Strout. This is Elizabeth Stroud, and I'm reading a short story by William Trevor called Rose Wept. How nice all this is, Rose's mother cried, with dishes on the way to the table Rose had laid. What weather, Mr. Bouvier, don't you think? Please sit here next to me. Obediently, Mr. Bouvier did so, replying to the comment about the weather. Can't stand a heat wave, Mr. Dakin cheerfully grumbled. Rose's father, Mrs. Dakin's better half, so she insisted, was bluff and genial. He spoke with a hoarseness, always keeping his head down as if saving it for professional use, he being an auctioneer. Apart from her shrillness, there was a similarity about his wife. Both were large and shared in ease, often to be found in people of their girth and stature. This evening Mr. Dakin was sweating, as he tended to in summer. He had taken his jacket off and undone the buttons of the waistcoat he always wore no matter what the temperature. His daughter sweltered in her guilt. Rose was eighteen and wished this evening she could be somewhere else. She wished she didn't have to meet Mr. Bouvier's weary eyes or watch him being polite, listening with inclined head to her mother, smiling at her father's bonhomie. The occasion was a celebration. Rose was to go to university. Mr. Bouvier had had a hand in her success— As a tutor, he had made borderline cases his business for more than thirty years, but intended to no longer, Rose being his last. My God, this is appalling, she thought. She had begged her mother not to issue this invitation, but Mrs. Dakin had insisted that they must. Mr. Bouvier had attempted to refuse, but then had been offered a choice of evenings. "'How I adore the asparagus season!' Rose heard her mother cry in her vivacious way, pressing a dish of the vegetable well-buttered on their visitor. Mr. Bouvier smiled and murmured his appreciation. He was a man of sixty-odd. Strands of faded hair were hardly noticeable on the freckled pate of his head. There were freckles also on the backs of his hands, on old worn-out skin. He wore a pale suit and one of his colorful Italian bow-ties.' "'And how is your world, Mr. Bouvier?' Mr. Dakin civilly inquired. "'Shrinking,' Mr. Bouvier replied. "'That is something you notice as you age.' Mrs. Dakin bubbled into good sort laughter. Mr. Dakin poured claret. "'You shrink yourself, of course.' Mr. Bouvier obligingly pursued the subject, since it was clear that Dakins liked to have a conversation going. He smiled at Rose. Half his teeth were still his own, gray, and sucked away to crags. "'Good tidings for the obese,' mumbled Mr. Dakin, his features screwed up as they often were when he made a joke. Directed against himself, his banter caused his wife to exclaim, "'Oh, Bobo, you're not obese!' "'I used to be six foot and half an inch,' Mr. Bouvier labored on. "'I'm nothing like that now.' "'But otherwise all is well?' Mr. Dakin inquired. "'Oh, yes, indeed.' Mrs. Dakin had had her dining room papered blue, a dark stripe and a lighter one. Curtains matched, the paintwork was white. Mrs. Dakin enjoyed this side of things and often said so. Leafless delphiniums patterned her drawing room. Her hall and staircase were black and gold. 
"'I say, this is awfully good,' Mr. Dakin complimented his wife on what she had done with the turkey slices that accompanied the asparagus. "'Delicious,' Mr. Bouvier affirmed. Rose wore a slate gray dress with a collar that folded back. Unlike her parents, Rose was petite, her fair hair cut short, a fringe following the curve of her forehead, her eyes a forget-me-not shade of blue. Her guilt this evening silenced her, and her smile came fleetingly and not often. When it did, her lower lip lost its beasting look, and for an instant her white, irregular teeth appeared. She felt awkward and unpretty at the dinner table, sick of herself. "'We cultivate it late in our garden,' her mother was saying, still talking about the asparagus, of which Rose had taken only a single shoot. "'Our season runs almost to September.' "'What kind of an ordeal was it for him?' Rose wondered. They had invited his wife as well, but a message had come the day before to say that Mrs. Bovier was unwell. Rose knew this wasn't true.' His wife had seized the opportunity. She'd said to him she couldn't be bothered, but that wasn't true either. His wife would be naked now, Rose thought. Extraordinary what you read on cars, rear windows, her mother suddenly remarked, the subject of a particular season of asparagus now exhausted. Baby on board, for instance. I mean, why on earth should a total stranger be interested in that? I think you're being told not to drive too close, Rose's father suggested. Tinkling with unmalicious social laughter, her mother pointed out that it was an enticement to drive too close in order to read what was said. They haven't thought of that, my dear. In all her chosen subjects, Rose had been a borderline case, and every Thursday afternoon for almost a year had gone to Mr. Bovier's house, where they had sat together in the bow window that looked out onto the garden. Mrs. Bovier brought tea as soon as Rose arrived, and while they drank it, Mr. Bovier didn't attempt to teach, but instead talked about the past, about his own life when he had been about to go to university himself, and later being interviewed for a position in the worsted cloth business. He had tried the worsted trade for a while, and then he had turned to schoolmastering. But something about the form of discipline and the tedium of hobbies time when the boys put together model airplanes, caused him to give it up after a year. Ever since, he had received pupils in his house, deciding only a month or so ago that Rose should be the last of them. But Rose knew that wasn't the reason. During all those tea times, he had spun his life out like a serial story. But it's odd, Mrs. Dakin lightly persisted. Don't you agree with me, Mr. Bovier? The old man hesitated, and Rose could see he had momentarily lost his track of conversation. She knew her mother would notice also and not be dismayed. Smoothly, her mother said, All those personal declarations on motor cars, whom people love, where they've been, who occupies the two front seats. Sharon and Liam usually, Mr. Dakin guffawed. Mrs. Bovray, ten years younger than her husband and seeming more, had a lover. Mrs. Bovary, slim and silky, with long legs and a wrinkled pout, too well made up, received a visitor on Thursday afternoons because her husband was occupied with the last of his pupils then, concentrating on a borderline case's weaknesses. Mrs. Bovary's visitor came softly, but there were half-muffled sounds, like the shadows passing through the house, a pattern of whispers and footfalls, a gently closed door, and always... Ten minutes or so before Rose was due to leave the house itself, the lightest of footsteps on the stairs and in the hall. 
It was a pattern that belonged with Mrs. Bouvier's placing the tea tray on the pale mahogany of the window table, her scent lingering after she left the room, the restlessness in her eyes. But Rose hadn't entirely guessed the nature of the weekly rendezvous until the afternoon she went to fetch a handkerchief from her coat pocket on the hall stand and saw a sallow-faced man with a latchkey in his hand breathlessly closing the hall door. Seeing her in turn, he smiled, a brightly secret smile. Younger than her? Rose's friend Caroline, sharp on detail, wanted to know, and Rose said no, not much, but beautifully turned out in a brown linen suit, a gray-haired man and elegant. Not come to mend something? suggested Daisy, who could not help being skeptical when someone else claimed the limelight. Her doubts were scorned at once by Angela and Liz, for why should a repairer of washing machines or television sets be in possession of a latchkey and be dressed so? Why should he come so regularly? Why should he smile a secret smile? In the Box Tree Cafe, where the five girls gossiped and complained of this and that, where they talked and talked about sex and other private matters, where Daisy and Caroline smoked, Mrs. Bovier's Thursday lover became the subject of intense and specific speculation. He was married, Caroline said, which was why he had come to her house. In illicit love affairs, there was always the difficulty of finding somewhere to go. He came on Thursdays because, Rose being the last of Mr. Bovier's pupils, there was no other time when Mr. Bovier was fully occupied as perhaps there had been in the past when there were other pupils. That kind of thing, and she's fifty? Daisy frowned through the words. But Angela said fifty was nothing. I do not intend to be unfaithful, Liz romantically declared. But the others weren't interested in that any more than they wished to dwell for long on the advanced age of Mrs. Bovier. What fascinated all of them, Daisy too in the end, was that while Rose sat in a room that had been described to them, a long, low-ceilinged room that had once been two, with sofas and armchairs, and a circular mirror over the mantelpiece. In a room upstairs, a man and a woman got into bed together. I would love to see him, Caroline said, even a glance. Was it like, each of them wondered in the box tree cafe, the lovemaking you saw on the television or in the cinema? Or was, somehow, the real thing quite different? They argued about that. I would not hesitate to be unfaithful, Caroline said, if things went stale. Caroline was like that her matter-of-factness sometimes sounding hard. Angela, long black hair, brown eyes, rarely smiling because of her dental wires, was the victim kind and accident-prone. Liz gave too much, generosity part of her romantic nature. Daisy, red-haired and bespeckled, distrusted the world. Liz was the prettiest of the five, with neat features and flaxen hair and a ponytail and a film star's mouth. Nothing particularly special except for deep blue eyes, but still the prettiest. Rose thought of herself as ordinary, too quiet, too shy, and nervous. Mrs. Bovier and her Thursday visitor were a godsend in her relationship with her friends. How nice all this is, Mrs. Dakin enthused for the second time, the subject of notices on motor cars having run its course. How hugely grateful to you we are, Mr. Bovier. Rose watched him shaking his head and heard him saying that the credit must wholly go to her. No, truly, Mr. Bovier, her father insisted with a solemn intonation. All her young life before her, her mother threw in. Rose hadn't told them, nor told her brother. It wasn't the sort of thing that was talked about within this family. She would have embarrassed and would have caused embarrassment. 
a very different reception from the one there had been when she had passed the information on in the Box Tree Cafe with its green-topped tables. After the first time, her friends had always been expectant. It could be any one of our mothers, Liz whispered, awestruck once. They had sat there, coffee drunk, Caroline and Daisy with their cigarettes, dwelling upon that, imagining Rose's sallow-skinned man arriving in the surroundings that had been described to them. Beautifully pressed, his linen suit, Rose said, and a plain green shirt. Around the dinner table, the conversation, still powered by Mrs. Dakin, had changed again. The kindest cut, she was saying now, drawing Mr. Bouvier's attention to the droll wit of hairdressers as exemplified in the titles chosen for their premises. Nutters, I saw the other day. This evening, for the very last time, he would be there. Mr. Bouvier did not normally go out to dinner. He'd said as much when joining in the celebratory mood on his arrival. No tea tray had been carried to the window table since Rose had ceased to visit the house. The invitation for this evening must have seemed like a gift, naughtily wrapped for slim Mrs. Bovary. It's a Mr. Asim, her husband had said on the last but one of their Thursdays, in case you are interested in his name. Mr. Dakin poured the wine again. He said they'd had the glasses as a wedding present, only four of them left, so they couldn't use them often. The midages, Mrs. Dakin murmured softly, the shrillness that whistled through her voice, gone from it now, inappropriate because the midages were no longer alive. She paused in her eating, inclining her head in memory, slanting it a little to the left, a wistful smile enlivening her reddened lips. Mr. Dakin sighed, then death passed on, and Mrs. Dakin picked up her fork again, and the wine bottle was replaced on its little silver tray, another wedding gift, although that was not said. Cuckold. In the Box Tree Cafe, the ugly word, first spoken by Caroline, had formed in their minds, its sound acquiring shape and color. Only Rose knew what Mr. Bouvier looked like, but he really scarcely came into it. It was not an old man who had once planned a future in the cloth trade and had ended as a tutor that was of interest. He was no rival for the darkened bedroom above the room that had once been two, or for the scent of Mrs. Bouvier or her lover's suit draped on a chair or smears of lipstick left on sallow flesh. No one ever interposed a comment while Rose spread out for the delectation of her friends another Thursday harvest. Once music softly played, smoke gets in your eyes. Once the telephone rang and was not answered by Mr. Bouvier, although the receiver was only yards from where they sat. Sooner than if he had crossed to it, the ringing ceased, answered at the bedside. Not always, but now and again, Mrs. Bouvier appeared on the stairs when Rose was putting her coat on at the hall stand, or in summer, when there was no coat, she sometimes called down goodbye when she heard the voices of her husband and his pupil. Vicious, Liz said. That's a vicious woman. But Rose said, no, you couldn't call Mrs. Bouvier vicious. She didn't strike you as that. More significant that she's childless, Daisy said, or at least it could be. Caroline disagreed. Oh, my golly gosh, Rose's father exclaimed with his auctioneer's jolliness when Gooseberry Fool was placed in front of him. Mrs. Dakin said the gooseberries had been picked from her own bushes. Delicious, Mr. Bouvier for the second time remarked, and the talk was of gooseberries for a while, of different varieties, one favored for this purpose, another for that. Mr. Asim, Rose had announced, 
in the Box Tree Cafe, and Daisy had gone at once to the telephone directory to look the name up. Hundreds, she'd said, returning hundreds of asms. In her absence, the conversation had advanced in another direction. The name agreed to be a foreign one, and then abandoned as a subject for discussion. When a husband knows, Caroline said, he's not so much a cuckold as complacent. And they talked about the fact that while Mr. Bouvier dealt with the last of his borderline cases, he knew what was occurring all around him. The nature of the creaking stairs and closing doors, the light tap of footsteps, not his wife's, the snatch of music hushed. Did he seem different when he said the name? Caroline sharply asked, and Rose said no. Her brother Jason arrived. Like his parents, he was well covered, with a jowl that was identically his father's, and with his mother's small, fat hands, bland in his manner. It was because of Jason that Mr. Bovier had been discovered, for Jason in his time had been a borderline case also. They greeted one another now, shaking hands, and inquiring about one another's well-being. How did it do? Jason asked Mr. Dakin when all that was over. Oh, well enough. The Chippendale fetched a price, a happy day's business, Mr. Dakin reported, smiling. How very nice. His wife glanced around the table, seeking to share her exultation in the day's success. All right, dear, she asked when her gaze lighted on her daughter. All right, Rose? Rose nodded, lying. I do mind, as a matter of fact, he had said, as if he knew all about the Box Tree Cafe and the audience of five crowding the same green-topped corner table, as if he had listened to every word. Guilt had come then, beginning in that moment. His spectacles had slipped to one side, and he adjusted them as soon as he had spoken. The cuffs of his blue tweed jacket were trimmed with leather. Yes, she'd said, not knowing what else to say, the waves of guilt already a sickness in her stomach. Yes. It was as though for all the months that had passed, they, too, had shared a secret. The secret of knowing everything that was happening and not saying. When her Thursday visits came to an end, a way of life would finish for him also. For Rose knew that Mr. Asim would not just come to the house and march upstairs while the old cuckold sighed and blinked. That would not be. All of it had to do with pretense and deception of a kind. I'm sorry, she had wanted to say, and did not know why she would have given anything not to have blurted out so much in the box-tree cafe. She had longed to share his confidences with him, but had betrayed him even before he offered them. In the lover's bedroom, Rose saw Mrs. Bouvier close her eyes in ecstasy, while the gooseberry fool was finished and Jason spoke of a function he had attended, how one man had gone on and on. Coffee came and was poured at the table. Don't go yet. Oh, love, don't go, Mrs. Bouvier pleaded, and Mr. Asim said he didn't ever want to go. Across the table, all that was in Mr. Bouvier's face, as so much had been when he gave the man a name and later when he said he minded. It was there behind the spectacles, in the tired skin touched with two crimson wine blurs above the cheekbones. They shared it, yet they did not. Their sharing was a comfort for him, yet the comfort was his fault as his wife's voice on the stairs. All right, dear, her mother asked again, and by way of response, Rose reached out for her coffee. A frown began to knit Mr. Dakin's forehead. Jason coughed and touched his face with a handkerchief, then folded it into his top pocket and began again about the function he had attended, referring to a commercial prospect he had advanced. His father nodded, thankfully diverted. 
Mrs. Dakin tidied the surface up, murmuring to Mr. Bovier that probably he'd never guess she'd been shy herself at Rose's age. I'm confident we'll pick it up, Jason said. I'll write tomorrow, see if we can't clinch. Mrs. Bovier clung to her lover, saying no, this couldn't be the last time, sobbing over him, noisily exclaiming that something better was their due. But Mr. Asim only shook his head. He was not a man to cause a wife who had borne his children to suffer. We have our dignity, you and I, he said. We have been given this much. Mr. Asim drew on his green shirt and brushed his hair with a hairbrush on the dressing table and saw that the lipstick smears were gone. I saw the pupil once, he said, but the woman he spoke to had turned her face to the wall. Sounds promising, Mr. Dakin complimented Jason. Shorter workout, I'd say. Mrs. Dakin poured more coffee. She spoke of names, how it had struck her this afternoon that names can inspire the quality they suggest. She described a prudence she had known when she was Rose's age, and a verity. Remember Ernest Calibor, she prompted Mr. Dakin, and he said yes, indeed. Bitter chocolates were passed around in the slim red box. When she'd refused one, Rose offered it across the table to Mr. Bovier. Thank you, Rose. The lover's footsteps were on the stairs, and then the front door closed, and he was gone. It's been so good of you, Mr. Bovier said, so very kind of you to have me. I hope your wife, Mrs. Dakin began. She was so sorry to miss an evening out. There'll be another time. We'll keep in touch. Always good to see you, Mr. Dakin added. Cheers us no end. The old man hesitated before he rose to go. Had he not done so, Rose might not have wept. But Mr. Bovier hesitated, and Rose wept to exclamations of concern and fuss and embarrassment, while Mr. Bovier stood awkwardly. She wept for his silent suffering, for his having to accept a distressing invitation because of her mother's innocent insistence. She wept for the last golden opportunity the occasion provided for two other people, for the woman whose sinning caused her in the end to turn her face to the wall, for the man whom duty bound to a wife. She wept for the modus vivende that was left in the house no pupil or lover would visit again, for the glimpse she had had of it enough to allow her a betrayal. She wept for her friends, for the unfaithful when things turned stale, and for the accident-prone, for the romantic who gave too much, and the mistrustful. She wept for the brittle surface of her mother's good sort laughter and her father's jolliness, and Jason settling into a niche. She wept for all her young life before her, and other glimpses and other betrayals. Nine Two Y's Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Y's Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redby.